Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. I'm excited for this episode you're about to listen to because we're continuing our study from story time. We're looking at the story of the great Starbucks company. And on this episode, uh, we're going to talk about those beginning early days when Howard Schultz wanted so badly to be a part of the company, but got rejected. That's right, he got told no. He was ready to drop his job, move across the country, and he got told thanks, but no thanks. So what happens next? Well, let's listen to the episode and let's find out. And from that no, if that was his final answer, we wouldn't be enjoying the company Starbucks as it is today, enjoying the flavor and the coffee and the atmosphere as it is today. But that definitely wasn't his final answer. So let's get into it. This is Storytime, the Starbucks Story, Part 3. Oh, good morning, good morning, good morning. How is everybody doing this morning? We are live, live, live. You know what time it is. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's time for story time. Good morning. I'm Sunny D. It's 9 a.m. on the East Coast. Wherever you're checking in from, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. We're live. We're back for another episode of story time. Hopefully you guys are doing well. It's Wednesday. It's May. It's 27th of May. A lot of cool things are happening. Our world is starting to come back open our world is starting to open back up and just saying good morning to everyone who's out there Kim how's it going everybody who's joining whether you're joining on one of the Facebook pages you're joining on Instagram you're joining on where else are we live we're live on Twitter we've got the podcast if you're listening to this on the podcast wherever you're joining from good morning back for another episode of story time we're rolling in This is going to be episode number 38 this morning that we're jumping into and we've been um, going through these different brands. If you're new to story time, this is where you get together with me for the morning, Um, your morning wake up, your morning ritual, your morning wound up, your morning wind up, whatever it is you want to call it. Um, But this is where you can come and hear some stories, some different business stories, some hot takes on, you know, different companies that I've learned from over the years. You know, I started story time during the coronavirus, the pandemic, and was really just looking for another way to connect and sharing, you know, my stories from the two books that I um, that I've written, the YFY book series. So I read through book one, I read through book two, your first year in the beauty industry, and then your first year in salon ownership, where I'm sharing all the things that I've gathered over the past 15 years from going from beauty school to going into salon ownership. And then when I was done reading through those, I was like, well, now what? So now we're shifting and we've been doing brand studies. We've been studying some of the greatest, the most iconic companies in the world. And we've gone through a couple already. We did a Ritz-Carlton hotel company. We went through the Ritz-Carlton hotel uh, company study and learned how they built up the incredible brand that they have. And then uh, last week, we were going through uh, McDonald's, the McDonald's Corporation. So we went through and learned about the early days. And, and the thing that I'm doing with story time is I'm really digging into those origin stories. Those stories that you may not hear, you probably won't hear. They're not going to be you know, what we all see today because a lot of these companies, they started you know, a total, in a totally different you know, way and then they became what they are today. So we see the result of years and years and years and years and years of uh, building, of innovating, of thinking, of changing, of trying, of testing. That's what we see. And that's usually what everybody sees. You know, when you first, when you first encounter a company, you see it as it is that day, but you don't see the you know the early days, the the near bankruptcies, all of the other crazy things that happen, you know, during a company's journey as they're building their brand, as they're building uh, ultimately, as they're building their story. And so that's what story time's about. I wanted to bring you guys into or back to you know those origin days, those founding days, those days when 
you know, the, the founders were trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to keep this company alive? And then we fast forward in the 2020 where we're at now, and then we see the iconic brands that they've become. And so I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I've been getting a lot of feedback. You know, I did a little poll to see what you know company we're going to study this week. I'm going to probably do another one um, for next week. You know, but some of the companies on the list, we got the Ritz-Carlton, we got McDonald's, we got Ikea, we got Apple, we got Starbucks, we've got Coca-Cola, we've got Patron. Um, we've got so many different companies that we can go through. And the way that I really started getting into it and becoming a historian and studying these companies, and the reason why is because I started a company and I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be as sharp as some of these people were. Also, I wanted to ultimately learn from their mistakes, right? You can study the past and you can learn so much to prepare you for the future. You know, think about uh, the situation that we find ourselves in right now during the corona economy, during this, this pandemic, there's so many things that we could have learned in the past that could set us up. And right now, there's so many things that we could be learning right now that can set us up for the future. So if you're just joining us, welcome. Share the stream with your friends, share it with your followers, invite people, um, because this week we've been going through the Starbucks story, one of my favorite companies in the world. For a lot of reasons, I enjoy their product. Um, I enjoy uh, a lot about the company, but their story is is just so rich in, um, you know, in history. I mean, fifty or almost fifty years old, the company is now. Uh, the the path that Howard Schultz navigated to take the company from where it started to where you know really where it is today. I mean, he actually left and came back. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but when he came back. You know, he took it even further. And I mean, it's an incredible story. So I'm excited. So if you've got some friends you invited over, uh, come on over. If you're on Facebook and you're, you're checking out this background that I got going on, um, this is the original store, the original uh, Starbucks location out in Seattle. And if you're not on the Facebook, if you're on the Instagram, I think I can probably show you guys what we're talking about here. Let's see, we'll go. So there's a little view of what the Facebook peeps are checking out. So there's the background. So that's the original Starbucks store um, in Seattle. The, the one that we've been talking about in the Pike Place, you know, marketplace. So that's it, you know, and it was just like what, you know, Howard said, it wasn't anything, you know, anything crazy. It was pretty uh, minimalist, pretty simple, pretty simple looking. Um, but that's the original, um, the original store in Seattle that's in the Pike Place Market. I've never been there, um, but that's one of my goals. I want to go visit that store. Um, you know, so that's definitely on my on my list. Um, but as I understand, I mean, it still exists today. But when you see that, and then you see some of the new stores, and you can see like in the in the uh, window there, they have that original. What it was originally called was. It was Starbucks coffee, tea, and spices. So that's the original logo right there um, with, the, with the mermaid. And we talked a little bit about that story and how they came up with that. But that's what the original location looks like. Um, that's not what you walk into today when you come into a Starbucks store. I mean, they've definitely done some iterations over the years, um, but that's how the original store started. So as we're going through this story and we're learning about this great company, we're learning about all these things. Um, hopefully, you guys will, you know, are getting, you know, inspired to um, to build your own companies. You know, whatever that company looks like. There's lots of different ways. There's lots of different um, avenues that we can take to build something. Um, but through story time, you know, hopefully you're getting inspired and and hearing some of the cool things that they were able to do. So where we left off yesterday, we were right in the middle of, you know, Howard Schultz. The successful, he's working for Hammerplast. It's like a, um, a housewares company, and he was selling all kinds of different, you know, housewares, kitchenwares, different kinds of you know, things like that, and super successful, making money. 
you know, has a great relationship with his girlfriend, but just not really feeling it, like knowing, hey, there's something else out there. There's something else I could be doing. There's, I wanna have more charge of my own destiny. So he's kind of kicking it in New York. All this is going on. And he's thinking, you know, what else? What's next? What's next? And so as he's thinking, you know, what's next, he's also, you know, watching his numbers. And his numbers are indicating that there's a company that's purchasing a lot of products from him. And he's like kind of getting curious, like why are they purchasing all these products? Um, it's good for him, right? He's making sales. But what he's wondering about is the product they're purchasing are these little coffee makers. So as this is happening and he's got these coffee makers going on, he's wondering about this company and then he goes into um, discovery mode discovers the companies out in Seattle it's a little coffee shop they got four stores at the time right and think about this this is you know 19 this is like right around 19 like 80 at this point um, but the company that he's investigating is a little coffee company called Starbucks and they started the company in 1970 and just you know three guys and they had an idea hey we want good coffee we can't really find good coffee we're having to travel you know drive to Canada to pick up this good coffee so why don't we start our own coffee company bam that's how it happens and so they start so they're 10 years in the game they have four stores 10 years in the game and um, this guy discovers it he's like you know Howard Schultz he like they're buying all these machines he goes out and he's just blown away he's blown away by the experience blown away by the coffee um, just blown away by their thought process and he's like you know what I want to be part of this and so that's kind of where we left off he had that meeting um, and now he's you know heading back he was out there for you know for that meeting and to visit them as a client of his and now he's heading back to New York so we're gonna jump back in um, and we're reading from pour your heart into it which is um, by Howard Schultz this is one of the uh, books that he's written he's written a few different books uh, but there are other books you know about the Starbucks um, story and about the Starbucks company there's a book the Starbucks experience by Joseph Michelli who also wrote the book the gold standard the new gold standard on the Ritz Carlton that I covered a couple of weeks ago there's also this book by Howard Schultz which is Onward. Um, this one, How Starbucks Fought for Its Life Without Losing Its Soul. Um, this is an incredible book as well. Uh, this one, you know, and, and it's gonna cover a lot of the different stories about, you know, cause Starbucks, there's ups and downs. So this book I'm reading from now is taking us up to, you know, through the public years, up through the late 90s. Um, but this book is gonna be like that beyond that next uh, chapter or so in the company's history. So those are just a couple other books. Um, definitely I would recommend, check them out. Um, so we're gonna get into this. So now we're, we're back in, he's coming back to New York and he's so inspired. Uh, let's, let's pick it up there. So this beginning here, we start with a quote. Some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? That was George Bernard Shaw often quoted by Robert F. Kennedy. If you say you never had a chance, perhaps you never took a chance. I couldn't stop thinking about Starbucks, although it was much smaller than the multinationals I had been working for in New York, it was so much more intriguing, like a jazz tune you can't get out of your head. I could see so many ways I could contribute. The next time Jerry Baldwin and his wife, Jane, were in New York, Sherry and I invited them out to dinner and the theater. We all hit it off. On a lark, I asked him, do you think there's any way I could fit in the Starbucks? He was just beginning to ponder the need to hire trained professionals, so he was willing to think about it. We discussed ways I could help with sales and marketing and merchandising. It took me a year to convince Jerry Baldwin to hire me. The idea appealed to him but others in the company were nervous about bringing in someone they regarded as a high-powered New Yorker. It's always a risk to take on a manager who hasn't grown up with the values of the company. Some days, I couldn't believe I was even entertaining the notion. Taking a job at Starbucks would mean giving up that $75,000 a year job, the prestige, the car, and the co-op, and for what? moving 3,000 miles across the country 
to join a tiny outfit with five coffee stores didn't make sense to a lot of my friends and family. My mother was especially concerned. You're doing well. You have a future, she argued. Don't give it up for a small company nobody's ever heard of. Over the next year, I found reasons to get back to Seattle several times. I was always made sure I always made sure I had time to spend with Jerry. We got to be comfortable with each other, sharing thoughts about merchandise Starbucks might carry, products that should or shouldn't bear the brand name, ways to build up customer loyalty. On each visit, I came prepared with a long list of ideas and listening to Jerry critique them helped me understand his vision for Starbucks. Jerry confided in me about a notion he had that Starbucks could one day expand outside Seattle. He was considering opening a store in Portland, Oregon, the nearest big U.S. city. He knew the company could be bigger, but seemed ambivalent about the changes growth might bring. I told him it was a great opportunity. The more I thought about it, the more promising an expansion seemed. Starbucks had such tremendous potential. All my friends in New York were wowed by the coffee once they tasted it. Why wouldn't people all over America have the same reaction? Surely the market was bigger than just a few thousand coffee lovers in the Northwest. Jerry had such a missionary zeal. It made sense to spread Starbucks excitement about coffee beans beyond Seattle. At that time, I knew of no other high-end coffee bean stores in New York City or any other city. So, you know, so Howard's kind of in that little dilemma. I'm going to jump in here, guys. So this is, you know, and, and I can relate to this part because when you think about it, like I started my company 10 years ago. Um, today we have four locations. We're in Florida primarily, and we have three here. Um, I've opened, uh, let's see, one, two, three, probably eight salons in my life. Um, some of them we closed, they didn't work. We tried concepts, they didn't work. Um, but our one that we opened most recently, which is in Texas, I've partnered. I have a couple partners now that I'm uh, working with that are in Texas. Um, and it took, you know, eight years to get to that point, you know, eight to nine years to get to that point because of those same reasons. You know, as a founder, you're thinking like, this is your baby, this is your project, um, bringing that into, you know, someone else's world and having them understand what the vision is. And, you know, there's there's a lot of hesitation at first. Um, and I've had people approach me over the years and I've always looked at it like this, if I'm going to partner with somebody, it's going to be people that, you know, I work with in the salon. It's going to be people that I work with, you know, that are with me um, in the salon because, because you want to protect the brand, because you want to keep, you know, your, your company's um, ethos and its soul intact. So where Howard's at, Howard's thinking, you know, I've got all these ideas I can, you know, take and, and help you know, build this brand Starbucks and create all of these, you know, different, you know, revenue flows and merchandising and marketing. But Jerry's hesitant because Jerry's like, yeah, this is the heart and soul. We're here. Um, but he's thinking about expanding. And when I first was thinking about expanding, you know, in the beginning of the company, I had thoughts, but, you know, going outside of then that's why all of our salons right now, the, the three that we have here in Florida, um, I kept them really close so I can get to them, right? So I can like literally, I can hop in my car and within an hour I can be in any one of our locations. When I go to Texas, I gotta get on a plane, you know, it's it's a few hours away, um, but I have a great partner that I found which kind of eased my apprehension and, and my hesitation about expanding outside of Florida. But that's where owners are and that's where founders are because, you know, you have your vision and you have your you know what what you have as far as what the company is and then being able to you know hand that over to somebody being able to say okay I trust that you're gonna take this company take our ideas and replicate them and honor the the system and you know build that so that's where you know as Howard was talking with Jerry about yeah you know Jerry's got the the four or five Starbucks locations you know he's thinking about maybe you know one day we'll open something in Portland which is you know, that was going to be a big move for him. But then he's got this guy from New York who has his vision to take it even further. And it's a, it's a lot of it's just about trust. A lot of it's about being secure. So he's, you know, he's working on him for over a year. 
just to get Jerry to hire him. And Howard's, you know, he's doing well, right? He's got a $75,000 a year job. He's going to give that up, move 3,000 miles across the country to this little Seattle, you know, you know, coffee shop company that's barely got anything going on um, because he's like, he believes that he can, A, he can believe he can add value. Obviously, he believes in the company and the mission and what they're doing. And so that's where, you know, you find yourself. And I can definitely relate to where Jerry was at at that point, not really knowing like, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure everything Howard said, and I mean, Howard, Howard you know, was definitely, he's successful. So I'm sure he's like, I got something on me. I'm sure he's like, yeah, but Jerry has that hesitation um, because of those things. So I definitely can relate to that. So we're going to jump ahead here. So in the spring of 1982, Jerry and Gordon invited me to San Francisco to meet their silent partner, a shareholder and board member named Steve Donovan over dinner. I was convinced that after all my lobbying, I had the job all but sewn up. I figured I would fly back to New York with an offer in hand. The dinner for me was the capstone of a job of a job courtship with Jerry that had lasted nearly a year, so I was determined it would go well. I dressed in one of my best suits and walked from my hotel to the restaurant, a high-end Italian place called Donatello's, uphill from the financial district. I passed the restaurant and circled the block once to pump up my confidence, despite a light rain. In a way, I had waited for my whole career for this dinner. I knew Jerry had told them I had ideas for growing the company, and this dinner was a chance for Steve and Gordon to assess my capabilities and how well I might fit into the company. Donatello's was an odd choice, more stuffy than I expected, with white linen tablecloths and waiters in bow ties. I was waiting at the table when Jerry, Gordon, and Steve arrived. Steve was a tall, blonde, classically handsome man. The three of them were wearing sport jackets, less formal than I was, but since they were all at least 10 years older, I was glad I had dressed formally. The dinner went well, exceptionally well. I liked Steve, an intellectual whose interests ranged from executive recruiting to research on meditation. Like Jerry and Gordon, he had traveled widely, read a great deal, and had a lot of interesting insights. Still, I was confident as I talked that I was impressing him. I kept glancing at Jerry and I could see approval in his eyes. After four years of college in the Midwest, I knew how to tone down the New York in me. Chatting easily about Italy and Sweden and San Francisco over appetizers and soup. We ordered a bottle of Barolo and were soon conversing like longtime friends. When the main course came, though, I switched the subject to Starbucks. You've got a real jewel, I said. I told them how I had served Starbucks coffee to my friends in New York, how enthused they had been by its dark, rich taste. New Yorkers would love Starbucks coffee. So would people in Chicago, Boston, Washington, everywhere. Starbucks could be so much bigger, I argued. It could grow beyond the Northwest, up and down the West Coast. It could even perhaps become a national company. It could have dozens of stores, maybe even hundreds. The Starbucks name could become synonymous with great coffee, a brand that guaranteed world-class quality. Think of it, I said. If Starbucks opened stores across the United States and Canada, you could share your knowledge and passion with so many more people. You could enrich so many lives. By the end of the meal, I could tell I had charmed them with my youthful enthusiasm and energy. They smiled at one another and seemed inspired by my vision. We parted, shaking hands, and I nodded and congratulated myself as I walked back to the hotel. I called Cherry, waking her up. It was fantastic, I told her. I think everyone is on track. Even with the three-hour time difference, I had trouble sleeping that night. Every aspect of my life was about to change. I started envisioning how I would give notice where Sherry and I would get married, how we'd move to Seattle. Perhaps we could buy a house with a yard and Starbucks, even the name, rang with magic. I was under its spell already. 24 hours later, I was back at my desk in New York and when my secretary told me Jerry was on the line, I reached for the phone eagerly. I'm sorry, Howard. I have some bad news. 
I couldn't believe the somber tone in his voice or the words. The three of them had talked it over and decided not to hire me. But why? It's too risky, too much change, he paused, clearly pained at the message he was having to deliver. Your plans sound great, but that's just not the vision we have for Starbucks. Instead of charming them, I had spooked them. They feared that I would be disruptive. I wasn't going to fit. I felt like a bride halfway down the aisle watching her groom back out the side door. I was too shell-shocked to think clearly. I saw my whole future flash in front of me and then crash and burn. That night I went home and poured my despair out to Sherry. I still believe so much in the future of Starbucks that I couldn't accept no as a final answer. This was, I thought, a turning point in my life. It had to happen. I had to join Starbucks. I wanted to convey to Jerry what was in my heart. The next day, I called Jerry back. Jerry, you're making a terrible mistake, I said. After all this time, we owe it to each other to isolate the issues. What exactly is the reason? Very calmly, we talked it over. The concern was this. The partners did not want to give me license to change the company. They worried that by hiring me, they would be committing themselves to a new direction for Starbucks. They also thought my style and energy would clash with the existing culture. I drew upon all the passion I had about Starbucks, about coffee, about this opportunity, and spoke from my deepest convictions. I told him how much I could offer, from my professional sales and marketing skills to the broad perspective I had developed managing a national sales force for Hammerplast. I was used to playing on a larger playing field and could plan and execute whatever expansion strategy we mutually agreed upon. Jerry, I protested, this isn't about me, it's about you. The destiny of Starbucks is at stake. We've talked so much about what Starbucks can be. It's your company, it's your vision. You're the only one who can achieve it. Somebody has to be courageous here, and it's you. Don't let them talk you out of something that you believe in your heart. Jerry heard me out, then fell silent. Let me sleep on it, he said. I'll call you back tomorrow. Perhaps he slept. I didn't. The next morning, I picked up the phone on the first ring. You were right, he said. I'm sorry for the 24-hour impasse. We're going forward. You have the job. Howard, you have my commitment. When can you come? So that right there is what we call persistence. So think about this, you guys. He's at the point where he's got it like you've got your fingers on the prize. You've got it. It's right there in front of you. And then at the last minute, you know, that hesitation, uh, that doubt, it creeps in. And that happens. And that's going to happen to you when you're going after something. Um, that's going to happen to you when uh, somebody presents an opportunity to you and you have to take a chance on something. There's going to be that point, you know, and you can call it the point of no return or you could call it the point of the point of return because Jerry pulls back. He's got other partners, you know, him and Howard had hit it off. So Howard kind of put himself out on the limb. He's thinking, you know, like he had that vision. Um, he shared it with Jerry and they kind of shared that vision together. So he's thinking, we're going to do this. This is in the bag. He's like packing his bags. He was telling Sherry, Sherry, get you know, get everything ready. We're moving to Seattle. And they have that great dinner. And then it's like, no. You know, so what if Howard doesn't pick up that phone? I'm not I'm not sitting here drinking a Starbucks coffee, probably. That's for sure. So having that courage and um, really believing it in his gut, in his is in his deepest you know, in his deepest gut and his feeling that this needs to happen, this should happen. Um, to be able to pick that, after they said, no, we're not moving forward, to be able to pick that phone up, to call him back and be like, hey, what's up? Let's do this and not take no for an answer. Sometimes no um, isn't really no. Um, sometimes no is like a yellow light, right? Doesn't necessarily mean stop, doesn't necessarily mean go, maybe slow down, but you know, it could be getting ready to go again. And, you know, so that's where he was at. And luckily, uh, luckily for us, right, that love Starbucks coffee and, and love with their company, 
that he did pick up that phone and he didn't take no for an answer. Or else we wouldn't be uh, enjoying what we have today. Oh, so let's move forward here. So bam, he's got the job. You got the job, man. All right, so a whole new world had just opened up in front of my eyes. Like the scene in The Wizard of Oz when everything changes from black and white to color. This barely imaginable dream was really going to happen. Although I would have to take a steep cut in pay, Jerry agreed to give me a small equity share. I would own a tiny slice of Starbucks future. In the 15 years since then, I've often wondered what would have happened had I just accepted his decision. Most people, when turned down for a job, just go away. Similar scenarios have subsequently played out in my life in other settings and with other issues. So many times I've been told it can't be done again and again. I've had to use every ounce of perseverance and persuasion I can summon to make things happen. Life is a series of near misses, but a whole, <clears throat> but a lot of what we ascribe to luck is not luck at all. It's seizing the day and accepting responsibility for your future. It's seeing what other people don't see and pursuing that vision no matter who tells you not to. In daily life, you get so much pressure from friends and family and colleagues urging you to take the easy way, to follow the prevailing wisdom that it can be difficult not to simply accept the status quo and do what's expected of you. But when you really believe in yourself, in your dream, you just have to do everything you possibly can to take control and make your vision a reality. No great achievement happens by luck. And so if you're thinking about doing something, guys, what he's saying right there is you got to go for it. No great achievement happens by luck, right? There's the perseverance. There's the, um, there's the will to try. And there's the will to continue to move forward. And that's a big message from that part. Let's continue. A black cloud appears. Now that I finally had the offer, I had to start planning for my move. My main concern, of course, was Sherry. This is an opportunity I can't pass up, I told her. I want you to go with me to Seattle for a visit. Before you say yes or no, you need to see the city and experience it for yourself. We flew out for a weekend, and once again, spring was at its peak, with the azaleas in full bloom and explosions of color bursting all over the city. Sherry liked Seattle, liked Starbucks, and was thrilled to see the Baldwins again, <clears throat> who were warm and generous with their time and advice. They knew volumes about food and wine, had interesting stories to tell of their world travels, and shared their knowledge about a wide range of subjects we were just beginning to explore. Sherry came back as certain as I was that this was the right thing to do. Both of us recognized, though, that moving to Seattle would mean a career sacrifice for Sherry. New York was a world center for interior design and Seattle far from it. But in the back of her mind, she had always expected to move out of the city someday. She wanted to have children and raise them in a different environment. Few women would have willingly give up, given up a promising career to move 3,000 miles to a city where they didn't know a soul because their husband wanted to join a small coffee company. But she didn't hesitate. She supported me 100% and she's always done, as she's always done. That constant encouragement has been vital for me. Although I was eager to start work at Starbucks, I decided to take some time off first. On a shoestring budget, we rented a small cottage for the summer in the Hamptons where we had met. We were married in July and enjoyed the romantic interlude. Our plan was to pack up our Audi and drive 3,000 miles across the country with our golden retriever in the back seat. We were to leave in mid-August and would arrive in Seattle by Labor Day weekend. We had already started loading the car to leave the following day when my mother called with terrible news. My father had lung cancer and was expected to live only a year. I was shaken to the core. He was only 60 years old and my brother Michael was still in college. It would be a harsh struggle with a devastating disease. My mother had come to rely on my strength. 
How could she get through this period with me in Seattle? It was one of those moments when you feel like you're being ripped into two jagged pieces. I had already committed to be in Seattle by the beginning of September, yet how could I leave now? I discussed it with my family and it seemed I had no choice. I had to go. I went to see my dad in the hospital. I had to say goodbye to him, not knowing when or if I'd see him again. My mother sat at his bedside crying. She was frightened, but she tried hard not to show it. It might have been the moment for a heart-to-heart -heart with my father, but we had never developed that sort of relationship. Go to Seattle, my dad said. You and Cherry have a new life to start there. We can handle things here. As I sat with him, two emotions were warring in my heart, overwhelming sadness and unresolved bitterness. My father had never been a good provider for the family. He had stumbled through a series of mind-numbing jobs, always chafing against the system, and now his life might be ending before he had taken control of it. I squeezed his hand and said an awkward goodbye. I don't know how I'm going to do this, I said to my mother as we waited for the elevator. Howard, you have to go, she insisted. I felt as if I were sinking as all the strength and energy and optimism seeped out of my body. When the elevator came, my mother gave me a hug and said firmly, you must go. I stepped inside and as I turned, I saw my mother's puffy red face bravely trying to smile. As soon as the doors clicked shut, I fell apart. Sherry and I kept to our plan of driving to Seattle, but a cloud of worry and dread traveled with us. I called home at every stop. Gradually, we learned that my father's prognosis was better than we thought. The tension eased, and we could throw our hearts into creating a new life together in this city we had barely started to explore. So, you know, there's going to be those decisions, you guys, tough times, you know, and, and tough measures, those things kind of go um, hand in hand. And so now they're heading out, they're going to Seattle, um, and this is the beginning of this, you know, this ride, this journey. Um, and they're going to get things, you know, get things going. He's got the job, they're on their way, uh, the atmosphere, you know, that they're rolling into in Starbucks in Seattle, um, knowing that you know, this is a new life, right? Picking up. I mean, it's one thing, you know, when you move, I moved a lot of times, I moved different places. Um, when you pick up and move, you know, it's like, you don't know really what's gonna happen. Um, so that's a big step. And now they're 3,000 miles away from family, from everything, you know, and they're uh, starting this new, new journey. All right, so let's jump back in here. Although it took Sherry about a year to really feel at home in Seattle, it took me about 20 minutes. At Starbucks, I hit the ground running. When I start something, I immerse myself totally in it. In those early months, I spent all of my waking hours in the stores, working behind the counter, meeting the Starbucks people, tasting different kinds of coffee, and talking with customers. Jerry was committed to providing me with very strong training on the coffee side. The last piece of my education, and definitely the highlight, was learning how to roast coffee. They didn't let me do that until December. I spent a week with, at the roaster, listening for the second pop, examining the color of the beans, learning to taste the subtle differences among various roasts. It was the fitting end of an intensive training. I felt as if I had been knighted. I probably surprised the people at Starbucks with how impassioned I was about coffee. When I worked in the store behind the counter, they were constantly testing my knowledge and how much I believed. I always had a good palate at blind tastings. Word got out. Not surprisingly, there was resentment from some members of the company that Jerry Baldwin had hired an outsider. I could sense that I had to prove myself, prove that I was worthy of the gestalt of Starbucks. I tried hard to blend in. For a tall, high-energy New Yorker and a quiet, understated city, that wasn't easy. I was used to dressing in expensive suits, and at Starbucks, the informal dress code tended toward turtlenecks and Birkenstocks. It took a while to build trust. Still, I was hired to do a job, and I was overflowing with ideas for the company. I wanted to make a positive impact. 
The atmosphere of Starbucks in those days was friendly and low-key, but we worked very hard. Christmas was our busiest season, and everybody in the office went to the stores to pitch in and help. One day, I was working in the Pike Place store during the busy season. The store was packed, and I was in, I was in place behind the counter, ringing up sales, filling bags with coffee beans. Suddenly, someone shouted, Hey! That guy just headed out with some stuff. Apparently, a customer had grabbed two expensive coffee makers, one in each hand, and headed out the door. I jumped over the counter and started running, without stopping to wonder whether the guy had a gun. I chased him up a steep cobblestone street yelling, Drop that stuff! Drop it! The thief was so startled that he dropped both the pieces he had stole and ran away. I picked them up and walked back into the store, holding the coffee makers up like trophies. Everybody applauded. That afternoon, I went back to the roasting plant where my office was and discovered that the staff had strung up a huge banner for me, which read, Make My Day. The more I got to know the company, the more I appreciated the passion behind it. But I gradually noticed one weakness. While the coffee was unquestionably the best it could be, the service sometimes came across as a little arrogant. That attitude grew out of the high degree of pride Starbucks had in the superiority of our coffee. Customers who relished in discovering new taste and blends enjoyed discussing their newfound knowledge with our people, but I noticed that first-time customers occasionally felt ignorant or slighted. I wanted to bridge that gap. I identified so closely with Starbucks that any flaw in Starbucks felt like my own personal weakness. So I worked with employees on customer-friendly sales skills and developed materials that would make it easy for customers to learn about coffee. Still, I figured there must be a better way to make great coffee accessible to more than a small elite of gourmet coffee drinkers. So he's trying to make impact right away. So he's in there <clears throat> doing everything. You know, he's starting from literally from the bottom, learning, working behind the counter. <clears throat> jumping over the counter to stop shoplifters, um, learning the roasting, uh, learning all the techniques, um, really just totally immersing himself in the company and thinking about ways to improve. You know, and that's the thing with, you know, his mindset, because he's that business guy, he's got, you know, the marketing skills training, he's got the communication skills, he's also got the presentation skills um, that he has from, you know, his trainings from early days, from Xerox, working at Hammerplast, um, his experience in the field so he's going to start developing some of those systems that's going to help them in the customer service realm and we're going to jump back in here so vision is what they call it when others can't see what you see there's no better place to truly savor the romance of life than Italy that's where I found the inspiration and vision that have driven my own life and the course of Starbucks from quiet Seattle to national prominence I discovered that in inspiration in the spring of 1983, a time when I wasn't even particularly looking for it. I had been at Starbucks for a year and the company had sent me to Milan to attend an international houseware show. I traveled alone and stayed at a low budget hotel near the convention center. The minute I stepped out the door and into the sunshine of the warm autumn day, the spirit of Italy washed over me. I didn't speak a word of Italian but I felt I belonged. Italians have an unparalleled appreciation for the fine pleasures of daily life. They have figured out how to live in perfect balance. They understand what it means to work and equally what it means to relax and enjoy life. They embrace everything with passion. Nothing is mediocre. The infrastructure in Italy is appalling. Nothing works, but the food of Italy is absolutely incredible. The architecture is breathtaking, the fashion still defines elegance all over the world. I especially love the light of Italy. It has a heady effect on me. It just brings me alive. And what the light shines on is equally amazing. You can be walking down a drab street in an unremarkable residential neighborhood when suddenly, through a half-open door, you catch an unbelievably bright image of a woman hanging colorful clothing in a courtyard ringed ringed with flowering plants or out of nowhere a merchant will roll up a metal door and reveal a gorgeous display of produce freshly picked fruits and vegetables arrayed in perfect gleaming rows 
Italians treat every detail of retail and food preparation with reverence and an insistence that nothing less than the best will do. In late summer and fall, for example, fresh figs are available at any ordinary produce stall. The merchant will ask, white or black? If the order is for half and half, the merchant will take a simple cardboard tray and cover it with three or four fig leaves, then pick each fig individually squeezing it to ensure the perfect level of ripeness. He will arrange the fruit in four rows, three white, three black, three white, three black. And he will slide the tray carefully into a bag and hand it to you with the pride of an artisan. The morning after I arrived, I decided to walk to the trade show, which was only 15 minutes from my hotel. I love to walk, and Milan is a perfect place for walking. Just as I started off, I noticed a little espresso bar. I ducked inside to look around. A cashier by the door smiled and nodded. Behind the counter, a tall, thin man greeted me cheerfully. Buongiorno! As he pressed down on a metal bar and a huge hiss of steam escaped. He handed a tiny porcelain demitasse of espresso to one of the three people who were standing elbow to elbow at the counter. Next came a handcrafted cappuccino topped with a head of perfect white foam. The barista moved so gracefully that it looked as though he were grinding coffee beans, pulling shots of espresso, and steaming milk all at the same time, all the while conversing merrily with his customers. It was great theater. Espresso? he asked me, his dark eyes flashing as he held out a cup he had just made. I couldn't resist. I reached for the espresso and took a sip. A strong, sensual flavor crossed my tongue. After three sips, it was gone, but I could still feel its warmth and energy. Half a block later, across a wide a side street, I saw another espresso bar. This one was even more crowded. I noticed that the gray-haired man behind the counter greeted each customer by name. He appeared to be both owner and operator. He and his customers were laughing and talking and enjoying the moment. I could tell that the customers were regulars and their routines comfortable and familiar. In the, few, in the next few blocks, I saw two more espresso bars. I was fascinated. I was on that day, it was on that day that I discovered the ritual and the romance of coffee bars in Italy. I saw how popular they were and how vibrant. Each one had its own unique character, but there was one common thread, the camaraderie between the customers who knew each other well and the barista who was performing with flair. At that time, there were 200,000 coffee bars in Italy and 1,500 alone in the city of Milan, a city the size of Philadelphia. It seemed they were on every street corner and all were packed. My mind started churning. That afternoon, after I finished my meetings at the trade show, I set off again walking the streets of Milan to observe more espresso bars. I soon found myself at the center of the city where the Piazza del Domo is almost literally lined with them. As you walk through the piazza, you're surrounded by the smells of coffee and roasting chestnuts and the light banter of political debate and the chatter of kids in school uniforms. Some of the area's coffee bars are elegant and stylish, while others are bigger work workaday places. In the morning, all are crowded and all serve espresso, the pure essence of coffee in a cup. There are, there are very few chairs, if any. All the customers stand up as they do in a western bar. All the men, it seemed, smoke. The energy pulses around you. Italian opera is playing. You can hear the interplay of people meeting for the first time, as well as people greeting friends they see every day at the bar. These places I saw offered comfort, community, and a sense of extended family, yet the customers probably don't know one another very well except in the context of that coffee bar. In the early afternoon, the pace slows down. I notice mothers with children and retired folks lingering and chatting with the barista. Later in the afternoon, many espresso places put small tables on the sidewalk and serve aperitifs. Each was a neighborhood gathering place part of an established daily routine. To the Italians, the coffee bar is not a diner as coffee shops came to be in America in the 1950s and 60s. 
It is an extension of the front porch, an extension of the home. Each morning they stop at their favorite coffee bar where they're treated with a cup of espresso that they know is custom made. In American terms, the person behind the counter is an unskilled worker, but he becomes an artist when he prepares a beautiful cup of coffee. The coffee baristas of Italy have a respected place in their neighborhoods. As I watched, I had a revelation. Starbucks had missed the point, completely missed it. This is so powerful, I thought. This is the link. The connection to the people who loved coffee did not have to take place only in their homes where they ground and brewed whole coffee, whole bean coffee. What we had to do was unlock the romance and mystery of coffee firsthand in coffee bars. The Italians understood the personal relationship that people could have to coffee, its social aspect. I couldn't believe that Starbucks was in the coffee business, yet was overlooking so central an element of it. It was like an epiphany. It was so immediate and physical that I was shaking. It seemed so obvious. Starbucks sold great coffee beans, but we didn't serve coffee by the cup. We treated coffee as produce, something to be bagged and sent home with the groceries. We stayed one big step away from the heart and soul of what coffee has meant throughout the centuries. Serving espresso drinks the Italian way could be the differentiator factor for Starbucks. If we could recreate in America the authentic Italian coffee bar culture, it might resonate with other Americans the way it did with me. Starbucks could be a great experience and not just a great retail store. I stayed in Milan about a week. I continued my walks through the city, getting lost every day. One morning, I took a train ride to Verona. Although it's only a 40-minute ride from industrial Milan, it felt as if it had stood still since the 13th century. Its coffee bars were much like Milan's, and in one, I mimicked someone and ordered a cafe latte, my first taste of that drink. I had expected it to be just coffee with milk, but I watched as the barista made a shot of espresso, steamed a frothy pitcher of milk, and poured the two into a cup with a dollop of foam on the top. Here was the perfect balance between steamed milk and coffee, combining espresso, which is the noble essence of coffee, and milk made sweet by steaming rather than by adding sugar. It was the perfect drink. Of all the coffee experts I had met, none had ever mentioned this drink. No one in America knows about this, I thought. I've got to take it back with me. Every night I would call Sherry back in Seattle and tell her what I was seeing and thinking. These people are so passionate about coffee, I told her. They've elevated it to a whole new level. On that day in the Piazza in Milan, I couldn't foresee the success Starbucks is today, but I felt the unexpressed demand for romance and community. The Italians had turned the drinking of coffee into a symphony. And it felt right. Starbucks was playing in the same hall, but we were playing without a string collection, a string section. I brought that feeling back to Seattle and fused it in the others around me, who recreated it for still others all over the country. Without the romance of Italian espresso, Starbucks would still be what it was, a beloved local coffee bean store in Seattle. And that is where we're going to finish. That's when you can feel that the, um, the ship was getting ready to take off. Um, he's so inspired by that trip, going to um, Italy, going to Milan, um, experiencing the essence of um, the social aspect, the community aspect, the gathering, the ritual. And he sees it. He sees the vision. And today... We're all kind of living in that vision that Howard saw uh, back in the early 80s on that trip to Milan. So that's where we're going to leave it. Um, I definitely, um, I'm inspired. I'm probably going to go to a Starbucks today, <laughs> even though most of them are closed. Maybe some will be open. Um, but that is a big part of it, you know, especially like we've seen like during the Corona economy, I'm sure <clears throat> they've done okay because they have drive through, but a lot of their stores, you know, that ritual to go, um, to go into a store, you know, maybe you meet somebody there, you're hanging out there, you've gone and set up, you know, brought your laptop, gone there, 
you know maybe got some work done it's kind of like a it's created that atmosphere where it's kind of like a hangout but it's also uh, a place where you go to get your coffee and that was really what you know Howard saw on that trip and wanted to bring that to life um, because before that they're selling beans right you can get coffee beans and you can get the hell out of here so he's like no that's not the the romance um, so that's where uh, things really start to take off um, so we'll be back tomorrow and we're going to get into those the next um, years as Starbucks starts really building um, the private years between 1997 uh, or no, I'm sorry 1987 to 1992 and so that's where the company's really going to start to take off um, and this is really going to cover all the private years uh, up until they go public and then the public years will cover um, which are 1992 to 1997 you know, and a lot happens when your company goes from being a privately held um, small company to becoming like a big, you know, publicly traded on the on the stock market where anybody can buy some, buy a share and own some of Starbucks because things change and things can change. Now, how do you keep your values? How do you keep your vision? Um, how do you not, you know, sell out in, this, in essence because you now have shareholders? So those are some of the things we'll learn about and then upcoming episodes of Storytime. So just wanna thank you guys again for being here. Um, hopefully you guys are doing good. Hopefully you're um, getting inspired by some of these stories. Uh, some of the key takeaways for me today, just thinking about you know no risk, no reward. Um, if he didn't pick up that phone after being told no, you don't have the job, you know, Starbucks doesn't happen. You know, so having the courage. Um, and then you know, moving, you know, taking a huge pay cut, moving all the way across the country, having the courage. Um, and then, you know, being able to really start to look at, you know, this opportunity for what it is. It's an opportunity and you have to make the best of it. You know, you have to make the best of every opportunity that's presented to you. And that's what he did. Um, that's what capitalizing an opportunity is. Um, and so that's our, our story for today for Starbucks. Amazing company. We'll continue this journey on the next episode of Storytime. So thank you guys for tuning in. Um, all past episodes, you can check them out on my Facebook page. You can check them out. Um, if you want to listen, you want to take Storytime on the go, all of these episodes, they live on the YFYI podcast. Just go to yfyipodcast.com. You can hear um, I've got almost 200 episodes and all of these Storytime live episodes are on there if you want to get caught up or you know, take story time on the go. So thanks again for tuning in, you guys. Um, I'll be back tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll be back for another episode of story time. You guys have a great day. Make sure you have the courage. Um, keep the persistence and the courage to keep going. And that's how great things are done. So talk to you guys soon. Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Thanks for listening to this episode and hopefully you guys uh, got some courage definitely. I think that was one of the big takeaways. Hopefully you got a, a little taste of what that looks like because in the face and, and against all odds, in the face of adversity, uh, you're going to be faced with it in your life. If you are going to set out to do really and accomplish anything, you're going to face adversity. You're going to be told no, uh, but what do you do after that? And so as you guys can see, you know, Howard didn't take no for an answer. Luckily, he didn't take no for an answer, uh, picks up that phone and gets and gets Jerry back on the phone and reignites him. Um, and they were able to continue their journey. And so now we're moving on to what happens next. We're going to be getting into the next episodes. Really, this is where the building starts. This is where that foundation is being laid. And I'm excited to share the rest of this journey as the great company Starbucks is being built. So hopefully you guys tune in for the next episode. You can catch all the episodes on the YFY podcast. Just go to yfypodcast.com. You can find past, you can find uh, current, you can find future episodes there. And if you want to join live for Storytime, uh, 9 a.m. you can join and catch Storytime Live on Facebook, on any of my Facebook pages. You can catch Storytime Live also on Instagram. I'm at SunnyD1.0. 
So just appreciate you guys for listening. Um, if you get a chance, leave a rating, leave a review. That helps the podcast get discovered. Whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, iHeart, wherever you're listening to the podcast, leave a rating, leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. So thanks again for tuning in to the YFY podcast, guys. And remember, this is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.